an overwhelming affirmation there. Just assume it's because you're greedily devouring the final remnant of the roots for his lunch. So, welcome. Uh, if it's your first time here, we do this every week, every Tuesday. Bruce Chris provides the food, I provide the teaching, you provide the ambiance <laughs> and the welcoming of other people. We're in the book of Exodus. We've been going through the book, and today we reach the halfway point of the book of Exodus. This chapter, chapters 19 and 20, are the mountaintop, literally and literarily. Is the apex of the book of Exodus. Exodus is all about God's presence with Israel. That's the theme that runs through Exodus. God hears their groaning in slavery. God comes down and sees them and visits them through Moses and through the, um, the affliction of Pharaoh and the plagues. Um, God comes down and, and interacts with Moses at the burning bush on this very same mountain. And in this chapter, God is going to literally come down in the presence of the people. The rest of the book of Exodus, after this chapter and the next chapter, are going to be all about how God and his people can coexist together in community. Them upholding their end of it, them upholding his end of it. So all of the regulations, all of the laws, all of the tabernacle construction, all of the priestly consecration, all those parts that you skip, you're reading through the Bible, they're going to be important because they're building the foundation of Israel as a society. Israel was a babe in Egypt. Israel was an adolescent in the Exodus. Israel is now becoming or coming into their adulthood as a nation through the giving of the law. And so they're going to formally receive the Torah. And that's what if you have Jewish friends when they have bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, that's what this is symbolic of them taking on the Torah and living under it, you know, becoming a, a child of the law, so to speak. And that's what we have in this chapter. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, God promised Moses, when Moses said, how will I know you're sending me? God said, this is how you'll know. When you've brought the people out of slavery, you're going to bring them back and you'll worship me on this mountain. That was the quote sign that God gave Moses saying, you'll know it when it happens. Now go. Well, this is the fulfillment of that. They are back on that mountain out of Egypt, the same place in Midian where Moses had his encounter with God in the burning bush. His father-in-law has come and brought back his wife and children to him, so his family's reunited in Midian, not in modern Sinai Peninsula. So if you go there and see St. Catherine's Monastery at Jebel Musa, it's beautiful, it's nice, but that's not where they were. There in what will be today, Saudi Arabia, in a part that's actually closed off the archaeology discovery, but that's where they are because Mount Sinai is in Midian. The sea that they crossed is the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, the Gulf of Aqaba, the Gulf of Suez. Check the podcast or the videos from about four weeks ago when we talked about that. Uh, we're going to pick it up, chapter 19. <clears throat> in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. What mountain? The mountain of God, not Horeb or Mount Sinai. In the third month, on the very day, it is making a point. This, is the, this would be the 48th day after they left Egypt. 
you do the, the Hebrew month reckoning and you work the chronology out. Day 48 is when they arrive at and camp at Mount Sinai. Day 49 will be a day of preparation. Day 50 will be when the fireworks display happens that we're about to get to. Then Moses went up to God. This is the first of seven ascents in the book of Exodus that Moses will go up the mountain, will go up seven times to go up and speak to God face to face. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob, what you're to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I carried you on eagle's wings. God's gonna, Moses is going to mention this again in Deuteronomy 32 about God hovering over Israel. He's going to use this imagery twice of a mother eagle or vulture. The, the, the Hebrew word, not sure, it's the same. It's eagle or vulture or, or some type of bird of prey. And, and the images are used interchangeably. But the image that God gives here is carrying or sheltering Israel on eagle's wings. That's a, that's a powerful symbol just in of itself because you think of eagles, of safety, of strength, but also eagles, how they teach their young. When eagles teach their young to fly, what do they do? They push them out of the nest. And, and they have to fly or else they die. Well, they don't let them die. The mother comes in and swoops the, the, the babies before they die, brings them back up, tries again, pushes them out. And eventually they learn to fly. And so that imagery was circulating in the minds uh, of a mother eagle being a protector, but also being a trainer, a teacher, a provider. However, another cool parallel is they just came out of Egypt. And in Egypt, there's an Egyptian goddess, uh, Nekbet. It is a female Egyptian goddess who's symbolized by a vulture or an eagle um, covering or sheltering, protecting her worshipers with her wings. It's a motif on a number of Egyptian uh, engravings and um, I, I had a slide projector here, I can show you some. But regardless, this symbol of an eagle protecting, nurturing, strengthening, training, overseeing, this is the image that God uses of himself and Israel. It's a feminine image. You know, God uses masculine imagery and masculine names, but there are times in scripture where God does use feminine imagery to describe his love, like a mother, loving and, and brooding over her children. So this is, that's a figure of speech there that he uses, and it's a neat one. Um, verse five, now, so you saw what I did, how I carried you on the eagle's wings, how I brought you to myself, how I protected you, brought you safely. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession because the whole earth is mine. And that, if you have an NIV, it says, although the whole earth is mine, it renders it as a conversive, but it's, it's the normal way you render that word is, is although, um, is because, not although. It's because the whole earth is mine. So you'll be my treasured possession. I own everything. I own it all. But there's, there's a part of it that, that, that you will be. And you will be my, my personal treasure, my personal stash, my, my prized possession of everything I own. Even though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Or a goy kadosh. It uses the word goy, goyim, Gentiles. Uh, in this section, it uses it of Israel saying, there are all these nations, all these boy, all these peoples throughout the world. You're going to be the holy boy. You're going to be the holy ones. 
you're going to be the ones who are set apart. That's what holy means. Holiness means set apart. Doesn't mean you don't smoke, dance, cuss, or drink. It means set apart. You are different. You are consecrated for a purpose. And the purpose for Israel is going to be to be his kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Now, priests' role, even before the, 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 the Levitical priesthood has been established, the role of a priest was well known. We've met many priests going all the way back to Melchizedek in Genesis. There are many priests. Priests were known throughout the ancient world, and their job was to be mediators. The role of the priest primarily was to be a mediator, to stand between the worshiper and the deity and ensure that things flow both ways smoothly. So the priest represented the people before God and represented God to the people. So the priest would teach, the priest would give judgment sometimes, the priest would, um, would, would take the worship and the sacrifices and then pronounce the blessings. All of those things, the priests were the mediators. And so what God's telling Israel here is I've called you out to be my treasured possession for the purpose of being a kingdom of priests. Priests did not exist for themselves. They existed for the worshiper's benefit. And Israel's calling was not for itself to be God's favorite. God shows no favoritism. Israel's calling was to be the vehicle through which all the nations would be brought back into unity and faith and community with God. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12. All the way back to Genesis 15. All the way back to Genesis 18. The Abrahamic promise was, through your offspring... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was the purpose of calling Abraham. Now we see in the second phase of this what God is going to say, and here's how I'm going to use these particular descendants of Abraham to fulfill this by creating them to be a kingdom of priests, creating them to be a holy nation, creating them to be the bridge by which I reach the world and the world is drawn back to me. I'm hammering this home because it gets forgotten in almost every surfacey understanding of the Old Testament and the calling of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel and all this stuff. People get enamored and they get wrapped up and they quote Genesis 12 and they quote the promises and you're the apple of my eye and this and that. And they totally create this people within a people. So you've got Christians that worship Jesus and then you've got Messianic or Jewish believers who are like the real deal and we're kind of the secondary. But the New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament doesn't recognize those distinctions. What it says is all the people who are in the Messiah, all the people who are following Israel's Messiah are what God always intended Israel to be and are fulfilling the purposes to which God always had called Israel. The continuation of the root of Abraham. The continuation of the promises to the patriarchs. It's all, it's not a, not a change. God hasn't dumped the Jewish people and decided I'm going to take Gentiles. He hasn't said, oh, I'm going to put my dealings with Jewish people on hold so I can do something with the Gentiles. No, all along he says, my purpose is to call a holy nation, a holy priesthood, and, and a people who will be the means through which I reach the world. And he does that in the Old Testament through Israel, even despite rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, until he gets to the time where the perfect Israelite comes, the one who doesn't rebel, the one who does fulfill the law, who keeps Torah, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the ultimate faithful Israel, Jesus the Messiah. And then Jesus the Messiah takes upon himself the identity of Israel, puts it on his shoulders, nails it to a cross, resurrects into glory, and then sends the Spirit into all the children of Israel. And then opens the door for Gentiles to come into that children of Israel. While at the same time cutting off the branches of those who are ethically Israel but who do not 
follow the Messiah of Jesus. So it's the same pattern, it's the same plan that's from the beginning. And it's here in Exodus as it was in Genesis and it carries through the Bible. So it's so important to see that big picture rather than finding scattering of verses here and there. It's we see, if you see what God's doing in the Old Testament, it's like the New Testament goes from um, watching TV in black and white to watching TV in full HD color. The more you know the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the coloring that gives vividness to what we read in the New Testament. And so that's why we spend so much time on it. That's why I harp on it so much. And because this has eschatological significance, it has significance today in the church age, it has significance in the future with the return of Jesus, it has significance in all the questions about what, what's going on in the world with Israel and the Middle East and end times and you know, who are God's people and what's God's covenant and his plan. All of that is being laid foundationally here in the Old Testament in this and the next chapter. And so it's fascinating when you come to in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter is writing to Christians everywhere, Jew and Gentile together in Jesus, when he writes to them, let me, I, I rarely flip to the New Testament while we're studying the Old Testament, but I just want to show you this, how this imagery works. When Peter is writing, 1 Peter chapter 2, so we're going from the very front of the Bible to near the very end of the Bible. When Peter is talking to the believers in Jesus, he says, chapter 2, verse 9, actually chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's telling the, 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 the Gentiles and the Jewish believers in Jesus, hey, in Jesus and through Jesus, you are inheriting what God has said to Israel. You're fulfilling the promises. You're a holy priesthood. He's applying this calling that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai to all of the people who were in Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, here it's crystal clear. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter reads the story and the identity of New Testament believers through the lens of God's calling of Old Testament Israel. you see that? He doesn't replace anything. He doesn't say God was fed up with the Jews, so he picked you Gentiles. Nonsense. The replacement theology is heresy. But he also doesn't say, you Gentiles have got something cool, and us Jews have got something cool, and we'll just let each other be. He doesn't say that either. He takes the promises to Israel, and he applies them to everyone who is following Israel's Messiah, who is in Jesus. That is one of the most foundational truths in the entire Bible. It spans both Testaments. If you are in Jesus, in that language, in Him, in community, if you've been joined to Him, He's been joined to you, you enter into the people of God. It's a communal thing, not just me and Jesus, but just me, Jesus, and everyone else who's in Jesus. Then you have entered into the identity of the people of God that spans back 4,000, 5,000 years. That's super crucial for how we read the Old Testament and what we see in it. So, you will be a holy nation. 
kingdom of priests, these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord God had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together or all at once. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, the second ascent of the mountain. So God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant. If you keep my covenant, you will be my holy nation. You will be my kingdom of priests. The people say, we will keep the covenant. Three times they will declare all together, everything the Lord has said we will do. This covenant that they're entering into is not like the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham did not require Abraham's agreement. It happened while he was asleep. He saw it in a vision. God, only God walked through the pieces of the sacrifice. And the significance of that, those of you that were here when we studied Genesis, you should remember, only one party walked through the covenant offering. That means that only God was responsible for upholding the promise to Abraham. But now in this second phase, as he continues to narrow his plan of salvation, they enter into what's called a bilateral covenant where the king offers a covenant and the vassal accepts the terms of the covenant. And so they enter into a contract, a binding agreement, and it has stipulations, it has requirements. So if the king doesn't keep his end, then the people have every right to rebel and find another king. And if the people don't keep their end, then the king has every right to come in and to punish them. This is the agreement that they're entering into, and these were common throughout the ancient Near East. They were called suzerain treaties or international suzerain treaties or uh, suzerain just is the ancient word for king sometimes they're called vassal treaties because they were entered into by a king a suzerain and a vassal but this happened all throughout the ancient world in the second millennium bc a conquering king would come he would do something for a people he would either conquer them by force or he would liberate them from their attackers and then there would be this formal covenant that he would enter into with those people so it would be like you know, I am the great king. I have liberated you from your enemies. I have restored your fortunes. I have rebuilt your cities. I have restored your honor. It would be this historical prologue. It would be listed out. Sometimes they're long, sometimes they're short. It would just basically say, here's the good stuff I did for you. And then there would be uh, uh, stipulations. It would be like, now, because of this, here's what you have to do for me. You have to pay me X percentage of your taxes. You have to worship the God that I worship in the temple that I've built. You have to send your children at a certain age to be enlisted for a certain time in our armies, yeah, whatever. There were stipulations. And then there was a section that said, if you do these things, then I will pour out my blessings on you. I'll prevent you from ever being attacked. I'll protect you from bandits. I'll, I'll provide you with the resources you need, your crops are going to this covenant. So it'd be like, you know, may the God so-and-so witness this agreement today. And or may the mountains be a witness to what we're doing, or we're setting up this pillar as a witness to this, that will always be there. And then after that would come the curses. If you broke the treaty, and they were usually like a lot longer. If you break this treaty and rebel against me, I will come in, I will destroy your houses, I will rape your women, I will slaughter your children, I will, you know, just on and on, super graphic. Just all your bodies will be food for the birds of the air, etc. It's just all these horrible curses. And so then after it, when that covenant was made, then they would sacrifice an animal, they would put its blood on them somehow, either walking through it, sprinkling on it, putting it on an altar, doing something with the blood, and then they would eat the meal together. And that was, the sin, that was signifying that this covenant has been sealed. It is a binding agreement. And if you break it, may God help you, or may the gods help you. 
That's what's going on in these two chapters. Israel as a people is entering into a suzerainty covenant with the true king, the true suzerain. Not Pharaoh, not a Hittite king, not an Assyrian king, but the king of all the universe, God himself. And so they declare, we will do and obey everything the Lord has said. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. The verb put their trust in is one word in Hebrew, it's aman. So they will always aman you. So we get the word amen. It's the word to believe. It means to literally live as if this is true. To put all of your faith in. God is coming and doing this pyrotechnic display at the top of this mountain for Moses' sake. Because he wants Moses to lead the people. And he wants the people to see that he is calling Moses to be their leader. He is elevating Moses in the eyes of the people by speaking face to face with Moses in an overwhelming display. This is a one-time thing. This is not what God, not God's normal way of operating with his people. So he's doing this for Moses' benefit to establish him in the eyes of the people as their leader. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow or make them holy or prepare them. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day. That would be day 50. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he should not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses has gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. All right, so there's a preparation time now. These two days, you're going to wash you're going to get ready. You've been traveling in the wilderness. Your pastoral hurts when you're dirty. You stink. <laughs> and you do. You've been around goats. They smell. The people that are around them smell. You're going to wash yourself. You're going to prepare. Why? Because something special is about to happen. Does this mean that this is why we wear nice clothes to church? No. This is not an everyday thing. God doesn't require people to have the best clothes when they come into his house. Or any other nonsense you've heard. Rather, this is, hey, this is special. <laughs> So get ready. Wash yourself. This is an object lesson. God is going to basically say for the next two days, every facet of your life is going to be devoted to the fact that I am holy and you are not. I am holy. You are common. I am unapproachable in my normal self. You are of the earth and tainted by sinfulness. And I want you to know this so that when I do come and enter in your midst, you don't take it for granted. You don't think, oh, I can just walk up to the Lord anytime. No. Put boundaries around the mountain. Anybody goes in it, they're to be killed. And you can't even kill them by touching them because you will secondhand accumulate their guilt. So you have to kill them by throwing things at them, either stones or arrows. This is how important. We don't know that anybody actually did touch the mountain. Actually, they probably didn't because of this warning. But it was super severe because God is grounding into Israel the concept of his holiness. And holiness does not mean he's just big, nice guy in the sky. And it doesn't mean that he's super calm and serene and clean. It's the holiness. Think of the image that God has used to portray himself throughout Genesis and Exodus. What is the image overwhelmingly that's been associated with God? Fire. Fire has been overwhelmingly associated with God throughout Genesis and Exodus. 
Go back and look how many times fire and God have been talked about in the same section. The holiness of God is the holiness of a blast furnace. And if you are not protected, then it will blow you away. It will burn you up. It will disintegrate you. That's the image that he's getting across to his people. And so he says to them to prepare. Why abstain from sex with women or sexual relationships? Uh, is that because, you know, sex is inherently bad? No. God created it. It was the first command in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Cue the Marvin Gaye music. Let's get it on. That was what God wanted. <laughs> sex was his idea and it was a good thing. However, it was to be an all-consuming thing on the earthly realm. Sexual union was to be the most intimate thing you could experience, not the cheapness that it was immediately after the fall, not what it's become today, not a physical activity that you just do whatever, you make money at it, or you abuse it, or you twist it, or you have it with anybody you want. Or... No, it was to be the coming together of one man, one woman in perfect union forever until they both die, until either of them died. That was what God intended. And so because of that, it was that in this interim, in this two days where God wanted that every thought's focused on what was about to happen, that would be a pretty big distraction if it was done right. If you're doing sex right, that should be the one thing you're thinking about while you're doing it and nothing else. I know that's not always the case, but it should be. And so what God's saying is even the holy things in life, even the good things in life for these two days, you're going to abstain from because you're focused your entire world is about to change. Everything you know is about to change completely. So on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, on this side of the mountain. God, um, outside I was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So this is mind-boggling for these people. Now, some people said, oh, this is describing a volcano. The problem is that the fire of a volcano comes up. This is the fire that came down on the mountain. This is not a volcano. So looking for volcanoes in the region is pointless. Yeah, people still do it. Um, the whole point of it is the fire of God. It comes down, it's his very present. Smoke, thunder, earthquake, lightning, fire. Elijah will know this. Job will know this. People will see and experience what's called a theophany, an appearance of God. And that's what's happening in Mount Sinai. God is showing up. And God is showing out for all of the nation to see. And then there's a parenthetical kind of a summary. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, third mention of the ascent. And God said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see me. Excuse me, so they may force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves for the Lord will break out against them. There's a word play there. Don't let the people break through push through, if they do, my holiness will break out against them. My holiness is a dangerous thing. And that's what Exodus will take pains to illustrate for the rest of the book. God's holiness is a dangerous thing. Not because he's bad, but because we are. And so it's like when you think of uh, the line in the wardrobe, one of the best lines in the book. 
when Lucy's asking Mr. Tumblr, Mr. Beaver and Miss Beaver about Aslan, and they're telling him all about this fearsome lion Aslan, and she says, oh my goodness, is he safe? And Miss Beaver says, no, of course he's not safe. He's good. That is a beautiful description of the holiness of God, and that's where C.S. Lewis got it from. So Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up on Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, for the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So it's set, the stage is set for God about to speak in the hearing of all the people. He's about to pronounce out of this thunder, this lightning, this cloud, and the voice of God is going to terrify the people. And they are going to actually say, Moses, stop. You go talk to him. We can't handle this. So all of this is instilling the authority of Moses, the authority of God, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of the people. God's coming down in fire, and it happens on the 50th day after they leave Egypt. The 50th day after Passover. What's the 50th day after Passover? Pentecost. The holiday of Pentecost is not a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament celebration to celebrate God's descending on Mount Sinai and giving the people the law of the covenant. You see now why it's Pentecost in the New Testament would have the significance of that. On the very day that celebrated God coming down in fire and giving his people their new identity and their new Torah, that's the day that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit down on his followers in Jerusalem, fills them with the Spirit, and gives them the power and the gospel and the message to go out and preach the new covenant. So everything in the Old Testament is foundational for the New Testament. This is the falling of the Spirit of God, but this time instead of falling just on one man, Moses, in this one face-to-face -face encounter that the people can't go to, in the New Covenant, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people, I'll pour out on all flesh. When sons and daughters will prophesy, old men will have dreams, and young men will see visions. All of this promise for the New Covenant would be that one day God would do the same thing again, the Sinai type thing again, but it would be with all of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it would involve Gentiles streaming to Mount Zion, and it would involve the people having a direct encounter and the Spirit not filling the mountaintop, but filling their hearts. And that's what you see happening in the New Testament. Pentecost, the same day that's being celebrated in this chapter. So read the Old Testament with a mindset of what's going to happen in the New Testament. Read the New Testament with a mindset of what's already happened in the Old Testament. And you start to see the harmony between the two and the bigger picture of what's going on. We're out of time. Next week, we're going to look at the ten things that God says out loud that all the people hear. And we'll see their reaction. Alright, so come back next week. Bring friends. Um, let people know about it. Um, if you're interested in some of this, if you want to continue, you want to know more about what we talked about today, I have some resources, DVD, books, that goes into more detail about all this stuff. Israel, covenant, people of God, how we read the Old Testament, all of that. So come talk to me. I hope you help with some. Have a great week. Thanks for coming.